Welcome to the RCIA Hollywood Podcast, coming to you weekly from Sunset Boulevard in the heart of Los Angeles. RCIA Hollywood is a program designed particularly for artists who have an interest in exploring the Catholic faith in a systematic way, with the possibility of being fully admitted into the church during the Easter season. RCIA stands for Rite of Christian Initiation of Adults, and it's a process that dates back to the very first centuries of Christianity. This Good Friday session on suffering was led by Barbara Nicolosi. Okay, so um, right now we're going to um, we're going to talk about suffering, and we're going to um, did everyone get to read? He read it to me. No. Did, was that a no face? Or no, that? I, I, I'm two-thirds of Okay, two-thirds is good. And Clayton, how about you? I'm about a third of the way. A third. Yeah. Uh, you didn't. No, 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 and no. And how about you guys? Partway. Partway third. Okay, well, you've got some of it then. And, um, and um, yeah, don't worry. Um, okay, so we're going to begin, and um, we have the Miserere in front of us still because we can just use that open door a little bit of that. We heard it in Latin. And um, the beautiful piece that Father had played for us. Uh, anybody just kind of off the side, especially for our new candidates there, um, you know why the church uses Latin? Why do you think we use Latin so much? Anyone want to make a guess at it over here? Anti-Babel. What do you mean? <laughs> That's actually close, but yeah, you're right. Um, it's a unifying language. It's, it's a universal language, yeah. And you, it's, it, it reminds us when we use it, for one reason, that's one of the reasons we use it, uh, that, when, that we are a church that's global. And we also transcend time. And the idea that uh, when we go together, especially um, in any settings where there's going to be people from many places, we have a common language, the language of the church. And, and it's, it, doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter if you're American or, or you know, African. Latin is the language of the church. And so no one has a you know, leg up on the other over that. So it, it reminds us of our, um, of our uh, universalness. But there's another reason, too. And that has to do with the fact. What do you want to make a guess? The language will ever change. Very good. It, it's a it's what we call a dead language. So Latin is only used in the church now, and um, and so the meanings of the, the meaning of the words will never change. So the theology of the church um, is put into Latin, and then kind of when we pray in the um, all these things that are written in Latin, um, it, they're never, their meanings are never going to change. Whereas in a, a live language, meanings of everything changes over a period of generations. So that gives it constancy, too. And then the third reason, probably just, um, and the Pope made this point not long ago. He gave a, talk, a couple of talks about um, the kind of music that was appropriate in the church. And he said organ music is extremely appropriate in the church because organ is pretty much only used now in churches. And so it has already, when people hear it, it's like, oh, this is, we're not behind a campfire, or we're not at a birthday party, or we're not at a club. It, Oregon is, has a solemnity that it's really only reserved to the church. So people automatically, their disposition would go, you know, I'm in a holy place. But he also said that, that um, when you hear a hymn, you should know that's going to be used at church. You should know immediately that it's a sacred hymn that's meant for worship of God. And that Latin adds to that. But there's there's a quality of the Latin of Latin that immediately like it, already it feels ethereal. It doesn't because of course it's not a language like Spanish or French which we could hear on the street. So you only hear it when it's used um, in the prayer. 
So I thought that was kind of cool. But I, that's also a, an interesting examination of conscience for the church in America about the music, whether if you took most of the songs that are being sung at Sunday Mass and you put them on the street and you just played them, whether people would know, take, them, take the words out, <laughs> are, are these things for the worship of God? Mm-hmm. And probably 90% of what we're singing, people would be like, whatever, it's elevator music. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, not as good as Barney, sometimes as good as Barney. Um, but really, uh, it's not necessarily distinguished by, whereas that, for example, the, the hymn that Father played, it, it absolutely, I don't care if you were, you would know that's of the sacred, no matter what time or place you are from. It, it feels immediately like it's it, it's in another realm. Why don't we do that more in the church? Someone want to take a guess? We don't always want to go to that realm. Mm-hmm. Hey, we don't want to go to that realm. <laughs> Number two, I don't think we can yeah, do it I anymore. I think we, we're, you're, we're just not that good musically. You know, my sister did a study recently on music in the church, and she said less than 10% of the musicians in the hymnals that we use actually study music. <laughs> Think about that. Now, now there, there are places, I'm sure, I'm mm-hmm. sure in LA, but in Chicago, you can hear this. Right. But it's yeah. not like every Catholic church yeah. you go to. Yeah. It's like, oh, but I mean, if you take glory and praise, less than 10% of yeah. the composers in there studied music. They basically taught themselves to play in their garage or around on their bed, and then that's and so so. There's no way that piece we heard this morning could be something you just stumbled into. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? And so that's I think it's hard. That's another reason. It's the same reason we don't have great movies in Hollywood. It's just too hard. Mm-hmm. So you know we get them rarely. Huh? Okay. Well, let's open here, um, and uh, we'll just um, we'll just go. Actually, uh, why don't we do um, the whole thing because. Uh, and we'll go through, through verse 20, and we'll go side to side. <coughs> in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. And we're side one. Okay, you guys are side two. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. In your great compassion, blot out my offenses. Wash me through and through from my wickedness, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you only have I sinned, and none what is evil in your sight. And so you are justified when you speak, and upright in your judgment. Indeed, I have been wicked from my birth, a sinner from my mother's womb. For behold, you look for truth deep within me, and will make me understand wisdom secretly. Purge me from my sin, and I shall be pure. Wash me, and I shall be clean indeed. Make me hear of joy and gladness, that the body you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Give me the joy of your saving help again, and sustain me with your bountiful spirit. I shall teach your ways to the wicked, and sinners shall return to you. Deliver me from death, O God, and my tongue shall sing of your righteousness, O God of my salvation. Open my lips, O Lord, and my mouth shall proclaim your praise. Had you desired it, I would have offered sacrifice, but you take no delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifice of God is a troubled spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Be favorable and gracious to Zion, 
and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then he will be pleased with the appointed sacrifices, with burnt offerings and oblations. Then shall they offer young bullocks upon your altar. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, it is now, and it will not be, world without end. In the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, well, we're going to start out with He leadeth me and um, and then get into the other part here. But um, uh, I think, um, first of all, I recommend you finish reading this book. What are you thinking of it, those of you who are reading it? Um, you enjoy it's great. It's, it's great. It's, it's sitting home. Isn't it? Mm-hmm. And um, what do you find? Um, I, I don't know if you noticed, but the, Clayton and I were talking about this. It builds. Mm-hmm. the book, uh, so that every chapter is a different kind of suffering, mm-hmm. and, um, and and then it just keeps getting more and more intense you know, as he goes, and it's funny because it's his chronological story. For those of you who haven't read it, this is the companion book to a book called With God in Russia, which was a very famous book that was written in the, I guess, the early 60s by a Father Walter Chiswick, who is now a... Um, He's past venerable, huh? He's, is it, he's, mm. he's not blessed yet, though. Maybe he's still venerable. Servant of God. Or, or servant of God. But his story is that he was a young Jesuit in the seminary when um, Pius the Eleventh put out a call in 1928 for um, priests to go to Russia because it was the church realized at this point that Russia wasn't coming back. And the Bolshevik Revolution was 1917, and, um, and now the church was being very severely persecuted in the mid-20s. And, and so the Pope put a call out for missionaries to go to Russia. So this young Jesuit, who was in his second year of seminary um, as a Jesuit, I'm going to go to Russia. And um, and he's in New York, and uh, his spirit's like, you are going to stay in New York and finish your studies. And he just kept agitating and agitating. So he, he gets sent to Rome, finally, to the Russicum, which is the special, in, uh, special school that the Pope set up to train missionaries for Russia. And he goes there, and um, just as he's like completing it, um, they stop because there's been too much persecution, and they're not they're not sending any more guys into um, Russia because they're just disappearing and getting killed. So he gets sent to Poland, and he's at the border of Russia, mm-hmm. and um, and then <clears throat> you know he, he's still determined to go into Russia, uh, and then what happens is the um, the Russian army withdraws. Um, in, the f- in front of the Germans and takes a lot of Polish people with him and then he and his friends get the bright idea why don't we withdraw with the Russian army and they didn't have their superiors <laughs> permission on this at all so so um, already what you're seeing is disappointment I'm going to go to Russia no you're not I'm going to go to Russia no you're not you're going to Poland you know I'm going to go you know well, I'm going to go to Russia and, and he makes it happen well he gets he gets um they get to Russia and then they're they're arrested, uh, you know, just a general roundup of prisoners uh, because they're, they're the communists are looking for all the time for spies from the fascists in the midst of the Polish people, and then um, and then while he's arrested, he goes around telling everyone, well, I think I've been arrested because I'm a priest. <laughs> Bad idea. <laughs> so he gets sent to Lubyanka, which is the Soviet horror prison of the of the the Soviet bloc. And um, in Moscow, it's in this, it's like two blocks from Red Square. You could hear the Red Square bell tolling. And these are nine years, I think, isn't it? It's like nine years oh. in solitary confinement. I think it's 
Um, it, I think it's wasn't it five, was it five altogether in Lubyanka? Because I thought it was it took him four years to break him down. I know after they break him, he has yeah. four more years. So it took him a year to break him. And yeah. Okay, yeah. sorry. So five years in Lubyanka, and then he gets sentenced to fifteen years. That's what it is. Yeah, fifteen years of hard labor in Siberia. So um, he does, and um, and then uh, he gets out there. So this is basically the guy's story. He he never can do the thing he thought he was trying to do because he's he just keeps getting, you know, put in prison or delayed or stopped and and um, and so but so with God in Russia tells this amazing story and then how he eventually gets out he gets out because his, he's an American and his family over here just never gave up and his sister basically gets him out um, and then he comes back and he says to his brother Jesuits in New York communism is bad and they're like we're all Marxists shut up <laughs> and actually Father Chizik was like really persecuted by his own community so his last like the, the last part of his story which isn't in with God in Russia is he comes back to his own community and gets persecuted and, and to this day they're a little bit embarrassed by him the Jesuits because he was a you know he, he kind of you know he kind of puts a tough face on communism you know. <laughs> so, but anyway um, he's uh, I think a great great saint uh, American saint he's definitely going to be raised to the altar but this book was written because he said that with God in Russia the publisher Doubleday wanted the adventure story of him hiding and and getting in prison and how sneaking around and everything but he really wasn't able to write the interior journey story so then he leadeth me is that it's, it's chapter by chapter um, so it's pretty much the same order as I said the first the first one is, you know, is um, uh, the, the Albertan is them, you know, in in the village in, in Poland, and he's going to recap how you know his disappointments earlier. But and then and then so the whole idea of the suffering of disappointment, the suffering of of confusion, you know, the suffering of, or in this case, one of the big sufferings was, um, or oh, the next the decision to enter Russia, the big suffering of not knowing what to do, and and what that causes. And so, but each chapter builds. Um, and the Lubyanka one, you know, ter- terrible. Um, so the the final, to me, the culmination of the book, it's not the final, it's in the midpoint. And to me, after this is where he changes. And it's this chapter called Four Years of Purgatory. And that's the one I want to talk about today, because if there's any chapter, one chapter in this book that you could read, and those of you who haven't read it, you want to borrow a copy from someone and read it today or tonight. Uh, this chapter of where he really turns the corner. And anybody remember, um, anybody read that chapter and, and want to just synthesize what happened? It was it was right after he has signed the false confession. And, and, and he says, after this, his life changed forever. The the struggle, the suffering that he went through there. Anybody remember that chapter? I want to say what exactly, how you understand what happened to him? Well, I think the order kind of mixed up. Mm-hmm. I was trying to explain it to her, mm-hmm. but he, he basically fell into a deep despair. What was that source of that despair? Remember? Well, he 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 confesses mm-hmm. and he's falsely, not, falsely, right? Uh-huh. And he's filled with doubt. Mm-hmm. Now it, he, he was just so broken down that he finally confesses to something he doesn't do, mm-hmm. um, and he feels terrible. Right. And but then when he goes to sign the paper to confess. Or I guess yeah, the the final document, whatever mm-hmm. it is, to seal the deal, he can't do it. Mm-hmm. But he's filled with peace, mm-hmm. and and it's and so it's four more years of interrogations and. Um, but suffering. he does finally sign it, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he signs it, and um and what is that? He thinks that's going to make it all go away, right? That's why he signs it because mm-hmm. he's so broken. 
He's like, you know what? I just can't suffer anymore. God knows I've suffered too much. So I'm just going to sign this thing, and then they're going to send me to Siberia. Siberia will be better than this. And so he signs it, and then what happens? You remember? They say, great, now we're going to spend five years talking about how you can help us. Now that you've admitted that you're a Vatican spy, now we're going to we're going to get in your brain. And so they start giving him Marx books and Lenin, and they start drilling him on communism. And, and so what he found is he thought he was getting out of the suffering by surrendering, and it ends up being much, much worse. Before he was just, he was suffering, but now he's in despair because he doesn't see any way out of this endless trap now. They're not going to let him go. Now that they think they've broken him, um, then now they're like, now you're going to work for us. So it becomes this just awful, awful um, game, a mental game for him. For, for, yeah. for me, it was like that, mm-hmm. that first um, letting go and saying, okay, I'm just going to go along. I, I'll let him tell the story how he wants to tell right. my story, yeah. and I'm not going to try to fight him or argue with him anymore. And he lets go out of almost a sense of survival. Yes. He just wants to feel like he's surviving. I mean, he wants to feel like he, um, uh, he he can't take it anymore, so he just lets go. He gives in and, and, and signs the <coughs> papers as the interrogator sees it, which is totally false. And he gets sent back to his cell and he feels totally victimized. He feels ashamed. He feels extremely guilty. And uh, so, but, but he thought that was the worst of it. Right. And the worst of it came later. Comes later. Yeah. Yeah, as he goes through this process. So I think one of the lessons that he learned, and this is a good lesson about suffering, is the thing where you think you can't really take it anymore, you, you know the, only, the thing that really is you can't take it anymore is when you can't take it anymore. It's not when you think you can't take it anymore. And, and like, in other words, your life will end when you can't take it anymore. <laughs> but anything before that is you just saying, I can't take this anymore. So you don't discern that your death will be the Exactly. <laughs> There's no discernment, and that's like a huge point of this is what he learns here. <coughs> suffering, as long as you're deciding, can I continue to take this, it's still your will choosing. And um, and that and that yeah, the ultimate way of knowing you can't take it anymore is when you die. <laughs> um, and so some things are better than um, in this case he, he thought, you know. I can't take it anymore. Then he discovered a whole new darkness. So I'm going to read this little, this is on page 73, but he's talking about now, um, you know, this clarification period, which lasted four years after he confessed, after he signed the confession, four years of them in his head trying to get him to become a collaborator. Um, And he says, um, I was so desolate that even prayer seemed impossible. I felt endangered and threatened anew, but I could find no light or consolation in prayer. I found myself instead reproaching God for not sparing me this new ordeal. I found myself wondering why he permitted it to go on day after day without finding some way to end it or helping me to find a way to step back from the downward path I seem to be moving along. I don't know if you've ever experienced something like that. I I have once in my life where I felt like I was going to lose my faith if God didn't do something. And I remember saying to God, excuse me. I'm working for you here. Do you realize what you're gonna, what you're blowing? If you don't do something, like I felt, I really felt my faith slipping through my fingers. And it's kind of funny to relate it, but at the same, that was literally valid. Like I was, re- I was angry at God for squandering me. And and you know, and you and you kind of you want to be rescued, um, in the way you want to be rescued. 
and uh, and it's terror it's terrifying, but it still shows that you're at that point when you're when you're praying that way, that you're still identifying yourself not as a, um, as someone totally abandoned to God's will. You're identifying yourself as partners with God. <laughs> you know, you know, same team. Okay, you're the you're the colonel. I'm the major. But you know. But it's like we're we're linked in this together, God, and so the idea that He would permit you when you start to feel, I could start to, I'm losing my faith here. I'm starting to wonder. I'm starting to really doubt. It's like right at the corner of my brain, um, and that's when you kind of shriek, God, don't, you know, be careful. <laughs> you know, and um, and so in that sense, it really reveals your your um, you're kind of still running the show. You think you're really running the show, and it's and it's all about what you're letting yourself. So I think that's what's going on with him there. And remember, he's a young man still when this is going on. Now, push a little bit. The insight that gets him out of this is beautiful, <coughs> um, and the, really the core of the book. And it becomes then the thing that that he builds his the rest of his life on. Anybody remember on page seventy-seven where he summarizes this major insight? that allows him to go then and begin anew. Anybody remember uh, who read it? Clayton, do you remember? Yeah, uh, it looks like it's the top of that middle paragraph is mm-hmm. what I yes, strikes me. Mm-hmm. Uh, now with sudden and almost blinding clarity and simplicity, I realized I had been trying to do something with my own will and intellect that was at once too much and mostly all wrong. God's will was not hidden somewhere out there in the situations in which I found myself. The situations themselves were his will for me. This is the key point. Now, I think that most of us tend to think if only we could get this thing out of our way, then we could go and solve this problem of the world. Like with me. If only we would get money, Act 1 could then save Hollywood. And if only, you know, and, and think of how many things you do like that. If only I wasn't, you know, overweight, everybody else would listen to me. If only I wasn't, what? What do you got? If, if only this thing was out of the way, we could then do great things, God and I. And what his realization was, it wasn't that he needed to get out of Lubyanka so that he could do God's will. God's will was Lubyanka. <coughs> and that God's way of saving Russia, which is what he thought he was doing, he was sent to Russia to save Russia. But I'm sorry, what was I can't say that again? Oh, okay. God, I, I, I'm sorry. It's an important point. I just mm-hmm. want to make sure I got that. Um, about, which, from where? God's will was not, like, yeah. Lubyanka. Yeah, God's will was not to get out of Lubyanka to yeah. save souls. God's will was Lubyanka. That's for him. For him. Yeah. And, and his prayer to God had been, I want to save Russia. I want to save souls in Russia. That's what he had signed on for. But his view of saving souls was, I'm a priest, I'm going to be carrying confessions and getting communion out there to the people. So when he's locked up for, you know, 20 years, it's like, this is not me saving Russia. But it really was. And when he realizes that, 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 it, that it's not God's will out there somewhere among the situations, mm-hmm. the situations themselves are God's will. And the other part about that was, you know, God's desire was to save him first. Yes, and then yeah. by doing that, you know, he would have never written this book if it mm-hmm. hadn't happened to him. And this is exactly true, yeah. yeah. And and so, I mean, his sufferings in that prison in the heart of Russia, in the, in the heart of Moscow, where he feels like he's being wasted, actually that is the suffering that is saving Russia from the inside, from the heart of Russia. Mm-hmm. And that's what he had to realize. 
that we don't, um, and this is another great, um, this is a great passage on 77. Up until now, I've always seen my role, man's role, in the divine economy as an active one. Up to this time, I retained in my own hands the reins of all decisions, action, and endeavors. I saw it now as my task to cooperate with his grace, to be involved to the end in the working out of salvation. God's will was out there somewhere, hidden, yet clear and unmistakable, if I could stumble into it. Right? It was my role, man's role, to discover what God's will was and then conform my will to it. So um, I remained, in essence, the master of my own destiny. Perfection consisted simply in learning to discover God's will in every situation and then doing it. And he's saying, you see, the, you see how that kind of nuanced is? All I have to do is discern God's will in this situation and do it. And, and what he learned is the situation was God's will. So this puts our suffering in a whole other context. Whatever is the thing that you think you need to get past so that you can be the thing you need to be, that thing is really the point. And that's St. Paul's insight that I boast of my weak, my weakness instead. And it took me, it's, it's still something, you know, you know, oh, I figured that out, you know, it took me until I was 37, you know. No, you know, it's something you constantly read, you know, but it does finally come like an insight. And I think that that sentence, I read that sentence once when I was in my mid-20s, and it stayed with me forever. God's will is not out there somewhere in the situation, it's the situation. And if you can then bring that home. Okay, so um, so I recommend any other comments about this book. Anybody want to throw something out there um, about it? Any other insights that came to anybody from it so far? Yes. So if God's will is a situation, mm-hmm. then our purpose is to just endure that situation. Our our yeah, our endure it, but I think embrace it. Yeah, rather than just enduring. More endure, embrace it, and say, um, in my weakness, Christ, I'm configured to Christ. Now, and I, I embrace this um, as um, my filling out the cross of Christ, my redeeming the world with Him. It's allowing Him to love you in the way that He wants to love you, not in some other way. This is true. Yeah. So that's the question: is to try to think of what that thing is. But remember again, Saint Paul, two Corinthians twelve. It's my favorite passage in all the letters of Saint Paul. You know, three times I asked of the Lord. I had a thorn in the flesh. And I said, Lord, three times I asked him to take it away because what a great apostle I could be if he would just take this thing away. And I love when he says three times I asked the Lord. Probably three times an hour. <laughs> right? I mean, when you really have something, probably for about a decade, three times. Yeah. We mean the biblical sense of three, yeah. which means infinite, infinite, right? Three times I asked the Lord. And so what did God finally say to him when God got sick of hearing that prayer? Anybody remember? My grace is enough for you, for my power is manifest in your weakness. My grace is enough for you. So that's, I love that because it's like, I can't do what I need to do, God, because this thing is weighing me down. And God says, no, my grace is enough for you to live with this thing, whatever it is, so that you can then now, now you can, as a broken, pathetic thing on the cross, now be a witness to the world. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll join us again next week. Until then, take care, and God bless.